Straight from the Mayor's Mouth, with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council. Hello everyone and welcome to Straight from the Mayor's Mouth. Hello there, Matt. It's good to see you back in the country of good old Oz. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm actually very thankful to be here because it was a bit scary, our last flight landing into Dubbo. Oh, yeah. There tell was me about it. What happened? Hot weather, obviously. So yes. we've got very hot weather at the moment. Incredibly hot weather. Yes. Bit of a heat yes, wave. As absolutely. You've got to step about. outside today and you'll feel that oven there cooking away. Oof, yeah. And the flight was landing in the middle of the day. Mm-hmm. And they came down to land, and just as they're about to land, they've hit the power and took off again. So almost a touch and go, but they didn't quite touch. Well, so, so it's come into land, like, like a normal landing, like a normal and he's, landing. he's come in too fast or too slow or whatever, and he's hit the tarmac and bounced back up again. He didn't quite hit, so he's come down, and obviously he's decided that things weren't in order, and wow. then they've hit the power and taken off. And it's a more powerful feeling than a normal takeoff mm. because you're – Coming down, so you're you're kind of descending, and yeah. then you've got to ascend, and also obviously accelerate to get enough speed yeah. up to yeah. do that. So it really threw you back into the back of your seat, and the whole plane was dead. Quite a pretty full plane, right? I'd, I'd say right. there maybe were two or three vacancies at most. So the whole plane was dead quiet. My God! And we're sitting there going, "Hmm, wonder what's going to happen." Might have been a few time. hail marys full of grace. <laughs> Lord, been, be with yeah. me right now, please. <laughs> <laughs> and they've turned around, and the pilot said nothing for a while. Right. And they've kind of turned around because uh, I imagine it's. Pretty full on in the cockpit. Yeah, yeah. This isn't a normal procedure they do no. every day. What, a kangaroo jump out and cross the, the front of the path of the plane? Or well, what actually happened? What the passengers knew nothing. So we're just waiting there going, hope everything's okay. Oh and as he's turned around and come back around, he finally, once they got up enough altitude, he said there was a bit of a wind change at the end just uh-huh. before they were landing. Mm-hmm. So they weren't happy with the landing and so they've decided to go around again. He didn't have the L plate you know, co-pole in there saying, uh, mate, you take the first run of this and see how we go. Maybe. <laughs> because as we all know, when the weather's very hot, especially in the middle of the day, yes, the, heat, thermals, yes. the air's thinner. So you've got less lift capability from the air. So you probably have to go a little bit faster. I don't know the technicalities, yeah. but I assume that's all the case. So it makes it a bit tougher in the middle of summer. I do remember years ago I was on a flight, a direct flight from Dubbo to Canberra, and it was coming back from Canberra, actually, similar time, maybe it was 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Yep. But it was pretty hot day, sometime around the end of January, and the, the plane was bouncing up and down all over the place. It was mm, a smaller mm. plane, and there were a few people screaming and mm. doing and ahhing. So there was no screaming. There was no noise on this. It was just wow. dead quiet. Deathly They've come around, and that's when I think you'd be very nervous. And whether the other pilot yeah. then did the landing the second time around, whether it was Give just... Give back those controls here, Jeff. I'll take the second run in. Maybe. <laughs> Who knows? So that's when your confidence might be a bit knocked around. Mm. And we've come down to land the second time around, and you could just almost cut the tension in the air with a knife. Oh, <laughs> goodness there, me. Getting ready for the brace yeah, position. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've got the finger sort of absolutely clawing into the side part there as you're about to land again absolutely for the second time. Right. Yeah. Oh, anyway, they've landed the second time, and it did seem like to me that it was going much faster than a normal landing, okay, right. but that might have just been because the tension was yeah, tightened in, right. in the plane. Something straight over Bruce Willis movie, mate. That's unreal. Yeah, it did. And I actually felt like there was need for applause, but once they then started to slow down, it was a fairly noisy plane to be in, so no one clapped them. But then when they said, welcome to Dubbo, I thought then applause might have broken out. And I was almost <laughs> tempted to start the applause. <laughs> so everyone sort of got off the plane and started kissing the tarmac. Sort of thing, <laughs> Bought some lottery tickets. <laughs> yeah, that's right, exactly. <laughs> and I talked to a couple of other people as we went off. I said, so you ever had that before? And they went, no, I haven't had that no, one before. I've never so. heard that before before. No, that's no, amazing. No, so it's, uh, it's a bit unnerving. Mm. And again, we've got 
a very good system in Australia. CASA has got a great reputation. Our airlines have got a great reputation. Mm. So you have confidence in the fact that this is a standard procedure. They would train for this scenario. Mm. Obviously, something wasn't right, so they've done it again. But when you're flying around up there, you're thinking, well, it's not as if they can just go somewhere else and land because it's hot everywhere. Mm. They haven't mm. got enough fuel on board to say, we'll just hang around till midnight when yeah. it might cool down a bit. That's right. So you know you're going to have to try and get mm. down somewhere. Yeah, yeah. And you're kind of sitting around up there, we can't stay here all day. But no, they turn around pretty quickly. All very professionally done. Well, I'm so pleased to see you're back here. You're back here with me uh, talking about today's podcast. That's yeah, wonderful. thank you. Thank you. Well, welcome back, mate. <laughs> Better than the alternative might have been. Oh, absolutely. That's exactly right. Well, buddy, uh, look, this is a really interesting one to sort of start off with today. Uh, um, an idea of yours that you sort of brought forward uh, quite a while ago now was this whole idea of a React Center, which was a, which and I'll let you explain in more detail, but it's a, the idea connects here to our renewable energy zone where you wanted to sort of look at creating a bit like an educational centre um, whereby to utilise what's happening right now in our this whole new renewable energy zone. So it looks as though something's starting to happen here. This is no longer a pie-in-the-sky sort of an idea. It sounds like there's some serious support for this. And people laughed at me. Can you believe that? People laughed at me. I think someone laughed at you. <laughs> throwing around this idea. I actually started thinking about this idea because I was thinking about the CSIRO Parks Radio Telescope, mm. and I was thinking about the Snowy Discovery Centre, the Snowy Mountains Hydro yes. Discovery Centre, and I thought, gee, that's great that they've got these visitor centres. So I started doing a bit of research on both of those. So the CSIRO Parks Radio Telescope was opened way back on the 31st of October 1961, mm. and of course it was made very famous when the moon landed, mm. when it was involved mm. in getting signals from the moon landing. Yep. They opened their visitor centre on the 14th of February, 1969. So maybe I love the that, way you just sort of throw out these dates, by the way. <laughs> so Very maybe, impressive of you. Maybe that was in readiness for the fact that the moon landing was happening later on that year. Mm. But they obviously thought, this is something that we think people will want to come along and have a look at. Now, mm. it doesn't do much. The park radio telescope can move, mm. but you've got to stand there for a long time to see it move. So it yes. just sits there. It's there and you it's look at it and go, dish. that's right, it, wow, that's pretty cool. And then you're waiting for something to happen. <laughs> so they built that and now that gets approximately 100,000 people a year amazing, isn't who it? come through that centre. Mm. That can be school students, can be general mm. people just going through. I have heard feedback from the Parks Council that it would be great if the telescope was just a bit closer to parks because when people go and visit the telescope, go to the Discovery Centre there, it's maybe not a direct relationship to then going into parks and okay. spending some money at a cafe yeah, right. or doing some shopping or whatever. Yep. But it's still good for parks. Yep. So I looked at that one. That's not too bad. Then we go back to the Snowy Mountains Hydroelectric Scheme. Now, that started way back on the 17th of October, 1949. Mm. It took until 1974 before it was finally mm. completed. So it was a mm. huge project. Yeah, massive undertaking for Australia. Yeah. Exactly right. And they actually had an education centre there before they were even producing the first power out of the system. Now, I suspect part of that was because they had to convince Australians that this was a good idea because mm. it was all a bit new. Mm. Hydroelectric schemes were going in other parts of the world, mm. famously around Niagara Falls, was hydroelectric yeah, scheme right, okay. there. Yep. But here in Australia, it wasn't really known that well. So they had some areas, some centres there to try and educate the public. You've now got the snowy Discovery Centre, which is in Cooma. Yep. And when you look at that centre, they get closer to 150,000 people a year go through That's there. That's amazing, isn't it? 150 yeah. school groups go through there every year. So yeah. what a great thing for I remember that. going there as a kid. Yeah, many, and I'm not even sure ago. if it's the same thing. They might have even updated it. Mm. Because I remember going to the Snowy Scheme when we were at school. Yep. But I 
don't remember if it's exactly the same one or if that's a whole new that's a big Center. model if my uh, memory serves me correctly a big model that sort of lit up like uh, like a christmas tree at night and it was teaching you about hydroelectric yes. power schemes yeah, so what a fantastic right. concept so i started thinking about this whole fact with the current whole area that we've got here in, in or just outside Dubbo with the Central West Arana mm. Renewable Energy Zone. I need to come up with an acronym for that because it just seems so long and clumsy <laughs> to say. And one of the things I thought of was out at Ningen, you've got a 102 megawatt solar farm, 250 hectares, and that was commissioned back in January 2016. But then in Nevertire, you've got a 132 megawatt solar farm, which is less area, 202 mm. hectares, mm. and they built a viewing platform at mm. that one. Now, I remember when I first heard to about this. To go and this, look at solar panels. Yeah, and I thought, who's going to look at that? Now, that was open in December 2019. Yeah. And I thought, no one's going to stand there and look at it, but they get people who go specifically Is that right? to yeah, stand yeah. on the viewing platform and look across the solar panels. Now, they don't move much either. They, no, they no. sometimes will move if they've got ones that follow But it's the sun. different and it's fascinating in many ways. It's it not, is fascinating. It's not something you use every day. So I thought if people are going to look at a dish, yes. if people are going to look at solar panels, then maybe they'll look at a whole renewable energy zone. Mm. So that's when I started talking about this idea. Now, I came up with the concept initially of an acronym called REAC, the Renewables Education and Activities Centre. So I thought somewhere down around all our wind farms, solar panels, yep. batteries, and there will be a hydroelectric scheme as part of that as well. It'll be more storage rather than mm. producing electricity. I thought maybe there'd be something down there that you could do. So I started talking about this idea, throwing the idea around, and I thought you could teach people about renewables because the same as people didn't know about yes. hydroelectric schemes back in the 50s. Absolutely. People don't really know enough about renewables now. Yeah. The electricity market, how that works, a whole mm -hmm. range of things of education. I also thought the A in there for activities would be good because maybe you could then start to have a mini wind turbine that you could go up and have a look inside. And a you're saying about absolutely down the side of it oh, or something? Hey, love look, it. You know, love hey, there the it idea. Is. So I've pitched this idea to a few different organisations and I just want to start people talking about it. I'm convinced mm. the way to make something happen is not to go and say, here's my fully completed 700-page document to go and make it happen. I'll give it to you now. Can you make it happen? Mm. It's like, no, it's, it takes longer than that and it takes a bit of sowing the seed mm. and then watering the seed and yep. then maybe fertilising the seed and then talking about the seed and then the seed starts to grow. So I've been mm. talking about this idea for some time. I've pitched the idea to Penny Sharp, for example, yes. the, the relevant minister. I've pitched the idea to Energico, who are building some of these transmission lines. I've just talked about it in general. And then I wrote my mayoral column, mayoral column number 72, back on the 24th of May this year. I went into great detail about some of the ideas around that. Right. And then in October... Councillor Richard Ivey, the Deputy Mayor and, and Councillor Dan Wellington, who's obviously very focused on getting something out of that, he said, well, I think we should formalise this a bit more. Let's get a business case. Now, yeah, right. some people, when they think about a business case, we've heard before where Council spent $100,000 in developing mm. a fully completed business case to try and pitch something. I don't think that's a good use of money. Mm. I don't think that's needed. And what Councillor Ivey wanted to do was just to get our staff to put some ideas together, high level, just to conceptualise it, Rather than me just talking about it and mm. writing a random mayoral mm. column, just to put a little bit more meat to it and give me something as the mayor yeah. to go out and present yep. to people that's a bit more formalised. So Council Ivy brought that idea forward as a notice of motion and that's a resolution of Council to create this idea and have some discussion with industry. Mm. We've changed the acronym ever so slightly. So it used to be a REAC we were talking about. Yep. We're now calling it a REACT Centre. Oh, so with the T at the end. A T at the end, and, and we've changed a little bit. So now it stands for, we've taken the activities out because 
the ab selling didn't seem to be that exciting, but some other oh, things like might be important. Yeah, I know. Maybe we can still do it. But <laughs> now it stands for Renewable Energy Awareness and Career Training. So it's React. Oh, okay. Center. So you've got a training element in this. And this is the thing. We've got a bit of feedback. When I talk to yeah. some other companies about it, they would say to me, well, we do need somewhere to do training. Yeah. We're going to need to teach people how to put together solar panels, how to, yeah. to work on wind turbines. Oh, so I can see why this is starting to take off. Yes. That's right. And yeah. so the training side of it suddenly became much more significant. Yeah. So that was back in October. Right. There's going to be a report brought back in December, so this month about this. Hmm. And I just wanted to find out from our staff how things are going because they've got to develop a business case, hmm. but you want to talk to some people in the industry. Now, they've talked to... Wellington Correctional Facility, so the, the two jails down yep. there in Wellington. Yep. Federation University, New South Wales TAFE, New South Wales Training Services. Some of the proponents, so we've got companies like Tilt and Squadron and Lightsource, and I'll mm. go back to Lightsource in a moment. Mm. You've got Energy Co, Department of Regional New South Wales. They're all keen on it. I've actually had big a letter. players there. They are, and I've actually had a letter from Penny Sharp, who's actually quoted the REAC, and I did speak to her recently and said, I love that letter you sent back with the REAC, but next time you send a letter, it's got to say REACT Centre because it's changed slightly. <laughs> But these different organisations are keen to see how they can be a part of it. And I think Excellent. where we're going to get it across the line will be that training. Yes, but yes. then if we can have the education and awareness, all the rest of it as part yeah. of it, activities maybe later on, maybe mm. that stage two, mm. but it's actually gathering legs quicker than I even thought it would. I yeah, thought really? this was something that would take some time so what's to get happened? going. Where are we up to now? Well, the business case will come back to council in terms yep. of a, a overall high-level business case. Mm. And certainly our staff have looked at things like the Parks Observatory that I mentioned and the, the Snowy Hydro Discovery Centre and even the Royal Flying Doctor Service Visitor Experience Centre, yep. that type of thing, yep. and Siding Springs Observatory. So there are lots of different examples just in our yep. patch of the woods. Well, you go out to the airport out there, there's it's an abundance of training centres out there, aren't there? So Dubbo in its own right, and this region has become quite synonymous with being a great place to go for training. Exactly right. So you've got all those things happening. Where we're at at the moment is it's still being developed, but... There is a lot of interest there. So mm. I think if we formalise that, it's probably a $4 million facility, thereabouts. Mm. Yep. But Is there any sort of funding available with this we can look at with uh, state government? Potentially maybe that money that state government's talking about giving us, we talked about last week on the last week's podcast, the $10 million there? Yeah, certainly there's potential for that. But I actually think industry will be keen to do something with this because they're spending money now. Mm. As we stand right today, they're spending money on training, having to send their staff somewhere to training. Mm. If they could train them somewhere near yes. where the activities were occurring, that would be a cost-saving for them. So I think the way we'll win some of those proponents over will be just by simple dollars. It's mm. more cost-effective yes. to do that. Now, light source could be important in this. It doesn't have to be this way. So who's light source? Who light source own the... Solar farm that's already there as you go across from Wellington to Mudgee. Right. There's a 200 megawatt approximately solar farm there. And there's a 400 megawatt, again, approximately solar farm that's being built. Light Source own those two. Oh, okay. They yep. also own a bit of land around there, which used to be the old Soil Conservation Service. Mm. And so there's a building and a land, a bit of land, which probably would be a pretty good spot for something like a React Centre. Yeah, right. It doesn't have to be there. And the ho whole idea of what we're putting together with our actual business case doesn't have to be there because it's high level. It's not saying at this location, build this. But I suspect that light source who have got a huge vested interest yep. in this yep. might say, well, actually, we've got a bit of land that would be perfect. We might even got an old building that we could use initially while we're building something new. Mm -hmm. Maybe do it there and then other proponents might commit to some training there. They might 
help fund it. There might be mm, a, mm. a joint agreement. There might be a whole range of different options there. But once mm. we get that business case, that'll be the yeah. step two. I was going to say step one, but I think step one is a bit of the discussion we've had. Yeah, yeah. Step two will be, okay, we're progressing down this path. When you start bringing all these people in, then maybe you need somewhere yeah. to take them. And again, I think a lot of organisations and the government yeah. would be very keen to make sure people understand oh, how absolutely. these things, because there's so much misinformation out there, so many people with their conspiracy theories about things, just have some facts wrapped around it. Yep. I think that'd be fantastic. My dream with this is to bring 100,000 people a year to Wellington. Mm, what mm. that would do to the Wellington economy yep. would be quite incredible. Help the planet in terms of yep. educating people about renewables, but also just that injection in the economy. That's the sort of long-lasting legacy we need. Well, as uh, Paul Kelly once said, from little things, big things grow. Now looking through uh, this little one here, Matt, so I'm interested to see the fact that uh, during the week there was – the Wellington Pool had to close and <coughs> – the, the message came across through the media that there was uh, an issue with, uh, I think it was something to do with a, a chemical imbalance that they put the wrong chemicals in the pool or, or something happened, I'm not quite sure. Um, I know that there's been some issues with the, the Dubbo pool, with the, um, the water slide not working down there. I know that the only up until this week, the grass itself down there was, had grown significantly. And there was, uh, now there's a new operating group that's in there, Belgravia. Um, a bit of a f- big fan of the fact you only get one shot at a first impression. <laughs> and their first impression right now has not been really impressive. Um, take us through it. What, what's, what's actually going on with this group? So if you go back a few steps, the Dubbo pool for many years was managed externally. The last council made the decision to bring it internally and run it internally. This council needed to make a decision about what we would continue to do. Do we continue running it internally where we employ the staff and run the pool and, and we're talking about Dubbo Pool mm. and Geary and Wellington, yeah. or do we go external? So we went through and did an analysis of that. We looked at all the options there. We asked for expression of interest. In the end, it was $400,000 cheaper to have it externally managed rather than internally managed. And mm. there's a few reasons for that. Our expertise is not running pools. Mm. Finding someone who does have expertise in running pools makes sense because mm. that's their specialty. Now, these guys have got... 200 pools or something, I mean, across Australia and well, New Zealand as well, isn't that right? Yeah, they've got about 220 or more yeah. So they're not amateurs, venues. They're, they're professional people these That's guys. right. And I wasn't going to talk about the company yet because mm. I want to go back one step just through sure. the process where expression of interest, let's go and look at that. And again, you make a decision about whether it should be internal or external. Now, some of the reasons it was more expensive for us to run it internally was, again, we, we don't have an expertise there. Do we know the best way to run a pool? Well, we've got a manager at council that's responsible for a range of things and mm. the pool. Mm. So that was hard. But the other problem we have, whenever we, council, runs a business, it doesn't matter what the award is for that business it or that industry, the local government award is what's used. So with a pool, for example, you've got staff that you need for six months of the year because you don't have the pool open 12 mm. months of the year. Mm. And you've got to work out a way to employ those staff where they're working longer hours, longer days, more days of the week than they normally would, and then certain overtime is triggered, certain different mm. wage calculations are triggered. Mm. So that makes it more expensive for us from that perspective, plus the fact that we don't have that expertise. And then what do we do with those staff for the other six months of the year? A lot of them are casual staff, obviously. Yep. Then you've got to try and recruit those staff for the next year. And so it's problematic, and you do question whether or not that's what we should be doing. So we went through that process, and we made a decision, which is still the right decision. 
we went to an external contractor. And so we did that based on all the information we had before us and we analysed those figures and council, as in the council laws, made a decision to go external. And so again, that's a resolution of council, so I fully support that. Belgravia Leisure was the company chosen for a whole range of reasons, but some of the logic, I suppose, for councils when they're looking at it all, mm. said if this company manages 220 plus pools in Australia and New Zealand, I think they cover every state and territory in Australia. I'm not sure about the ACT, but certainly Northern Territory, they've yeah. got venues. Well, it's so quite a resume. If you've got 220 pools, as, as I said, like they're a professional operation. They're, they're a group that n- should know what they're doing. That's right. And it's, and it's venues. So some of them aren't just pools. Some of them are a bit different, but they've got 220 venues they're managing across Australia and New Zealand. Mm. So you think, well, they've probably got some idea on how to manage mm. all of these. So that's good. We talked some other places that have Belgravia managing their pool, some yep. of the neighbours that we have. And, and they're they all quite happy with the operations that they were running? Absolutely right. So okay. all okay. So we awarded the contract to Belgravia based on a whole range of things, the cost factor being one of them, obviously their background, the performance experience. And it would be fair to say at this stage they haven't covered themselves in glory and the mm. community's a bit frustrated. And we absolutely hear that. Councils are hearing that. Our staff are hearing that. And so we're working our way through some of those problems, some of those issues. Mm. I don't think it means the decision was wrong. Mm. I'm disappointed with the performance of Belgravia Leisure, mm. but I'm still not thinking the decision to go external is the wrong decision. Yeah. You don't just decide that someone hasn't performed up to the right standard and that's it. Forget about that particular organisation or the concept of that organisation. The concept was still right. Now, the one with Wellington was certainly disappointing. Mm. They had a chemical-related safety incident, so they shut down the pool, which would be normal protocol. If that happened with Dubbo Regional Council managing the pool in Wellington or any other contractor, if the same thing happened, they would have to shut down the pool. Does that mean the fact that they put the wrong chemicals in the pool or or what happened there? I don't actually know the full details, and I suppose I don't want to talk about the exact details until I find out the full story, but I imagine there was probably a spill in the actual chemical room rather than putting the wrong chemicals in the water. But again, I don't have all the information to say definitely. But ultimately, there was an issue there, work health and safety incident. They shut that down, which is the correct procedure. The problem that I have is that I've said for a long time, communication is vital. Mm. So something happened like that, you communicate with the public, you communicate with council, but they did neither of those, which Mm. is a bit disappointing. Mm. We've been talking to them. The pool's now up and open again. But the next time, how are you going to get it better the next time? Mm. And so there's been some little issues. Dubbo's had some issues. They had some equipment failure. Again, it probably would have happened with that same equipment failure if it was managed by Dubbo Regional Council. Mm. So that's probably not the problem, but it's the way they're dealing with those problems. And you really judge an organisation by how they deal with problems. It's it's relatively easy for a business to open up and sell products and everything's going fine. The day they have a problem is the day you test out how good their procedures are and how things happen. And I take the example that we talked about before with a mm. plane. Mm. A plane, you hope that an airline's got very good procedures and certain things happen. And so you do have an issue and it's handled and it's communicated and everything's okay because you've got confidence in their procedures. In this case, I'm mm. a bit disappointed in their procedures. So just in regards to that, is, is there a quality control process the council puts into place in regards to situations like this where you've got an external operator running at a, a council-owned facility? If we take the caravan park, for example, we've got certain metrics. It's managed. We've got that externally contracted as well. Mm. We've got certain metrics in place. They've got to report on those metrics. They get that information back. And while things are running smoothly, that's a fairly simple process, which doesn't take a lot of staff time. I got the report this month from the caravan park. That's been managed fine. And here are the numbers going through. Everything's okay. With this particular one, what we'll have to do in the short term is we'll have to step up that monitoring. 
which isn't great because that erodes away some mm. of the savings that you're making in mm. that particular contract. And I think we'll have to do that in the short term until we're more comfortable that things are running along smoothly and yep. then we can step back again. Now, they they are having an issue with getting enough employees, but I don't know a business in Dubbo yep. that isn't having that same issue. They're bringing in employees from other pools that they manage, so they've mm. got that huge advantage over council. We may well have had an identical problem with not enough staff, mm. but I don't really want to focus on that because we gave a contract to a company and we pay them money Absolutely. to not have us have the problem. So whether we would yeah. have the same problems or not is a little bit irrelevant yeah. because we're paying another organisation well, to do it. You take absolutely. care of it. Absolutely. And I think that's a big part of this this whole frustration I think that, that the Dubbo community is generally feeling right now, and I suggest Wellington as well, that this is an organisation that is getting paid uh, to do a job that uh, many people are feeling is, is not being done effectively enough. Simple things like making sure that the lawn looks immaculate, I would suggest there's always been a quality scenario down there. Having those little things sorted out, it may not sound like a lot sitting on here and there, but I can tell you for people going down there, visually and aesthetically, you want that place looking Mickey Mouse. That, that should be just a standard operation. Anyone could be able to operate a lawnmower. The next thing, I suppose, things like your water slides and those sort of things, why they, I can understand if you need someone up the top there and who's got the the life-saving control or whatever, okay, I get that, but you've had a couple of months now to sort this out, guys. You know, these are the things I suggest that are still causing levels of frustration. So I'm hearing here, Matt, the fact that council's onto it and the council's obviously not happy um, and are pretty keen to obviously want to see this uh, turned around pretty quickly. Yeah, and take the lawn mowing. If the only problem they had was the grass was a bit long, you'd say, oh, yeah, the grass will be long, that's not too big an issue. Mm. But when you see multiple issues, yep. then you feel like it's systemic. Yep. So when you say the water slide wasn't open and then the canteen wasn't open yep. and then a pool got shut down because of equipment failure and then a pool got cut, shut down because of chemical failure and yep. then the lawn's not mowed, yep. you think, well, gee, this is systemic. That's an operational matter, isn't it? It really is. And yep. that's making sure that you've got all those things, all your ducks in a row, if you like, but also, there is an incentive for them to have more people come through. Yeah. Some people have said to me, well, isn't it better for them that they just take the money and don't have anyone come through? No. Mm. The more people they get through, the more they get paid. Mm. So there's an incentive for them to run it well. Mm. So that's that's all a bit disappointing. And communication probably been the biggest thing I've seen. Yeah. There's been some people also talking about the Geary pool and they're not happy about the opening hours. They're opening the hours that we put in our contract. Okay. So that's not Belgravia's fault. That's council. But the opening hours we put in as a minimum – are the same opening hours since the amalgamation in 2016. Mm -hmm. So when we as council, when we ran the pool, we said, here are the opening hours we're going to run with because it's expensive. We don't get a lot mm. of people going to the Geary pool. We estimate that it costs us about $27 for each person that visits oh, the wow. pool in Geary. Yeah, right. They don't get charged it, obviously. Yeah, yeah, but that's the general costing. That's yeah, okay. when we break down how much it costs us to run mm. that pool, how much income we get, and then the number of people that go through, mm. then it costs us about $27 to the community. Mm. And I'm not sure that that's acceptable when you open for longer hours and it becomes more expensive. Mm. But they're opening, so that's not Belgravia, they're opening the hours that they're meant to open okay. there. So we'll have to do some closer contract monitoring, which is a bit frustrating, but we need to get Belgravia to come out the end of that. We're also talking to them about some penalties. So in other words, not paying them the amount that's in the contract because of some of their yep. poor performance in terms of some of these triggers. Yep. Not having the canteen open, that's not a trigger for penalties in terms of that. But not having the pool open, mm. not communicating that, mm. not following the correct procedures, mm. they are triggers in the contract to oh, have absolutely. either yeah. cancellation of a contract or penalties in that contract. So there are things like that we're going through and working okay. on. So we'll get there. The decision, in my opinion, is still the right decision, mm. but we just need to get the performance running a bit better. Mm. 
Now, getting back to uh, that renewable energy zone, um, it's an interesting little one that sort of seems to have come up here during the week, and it's actually coming up again this week as well. There's um, Spices Creek Wind Farm. Now, there's been a, a, a massive uh, expression of interest proposal sort of set forward in regards to how this sort of stuff's going to look, the Spices Creek Wind Farm. Um, this is a huge operation. It's going to be uh, very close to where the Bedangra wind farms and wind turbines are already set up at. Is this a fait complete? Is this moving forward to the point now whereby if anyone wishes to object to any of this or to see what's actually happening here, wh- where are we up to in regards to uh, Spices Creek Wind Farm? So to give you an idea of the size of this one, 117 wind turbines. That's a lot of wind times, isn't it? Wow. 700 megawatts of power. Oof. It'll power approximately 395,000 homes in this state. That's incredible. That's more than their own Dubbo. Wow. So. <laughs> it's just, like, it just beggars belief, the, yeah. the, the size of these operations. The, you know, this is a thing that, I don't know if people have got their head around this yet. Well, um, what, what impresses me is how much power each turbine produces. I normally say to mm-hmm. people, very roughly, and these numbers aren't quite what I'm going to quote here, but mm. very roughly, one turbine is about 3,000 homes. Mm. So you think of one turbine sitting there, the blade just majestically turning around there, and there's 3,000 homes you've wow. powered. Wow, yeah, that's pretty yeah. cool. So, this is probably northeast, I'd describe it, of Wellington. So, yep. a bit further away than the Bedangra Wind Farm, but yep. in the vicinity. What's happened is that the environmental impact statement has already been out. So, this is one of those many processes that we've got to go through mm. in the regulatory process. So, that's already out. The submissions have been put into that time frame, is closed now. And now the next stage is those submission responses will be public this week. So people will be able to read the submissions because sometimes people will go, oh, yeah, I'm okay with that. And then they look at the submissions and go, oh, Mm. wait up, that might trigger something else there. So can people still object to this as as an option? I think they should be able to. Okay. We're not the consent authority, so I don't know the exact timeframes associated with that. This obviously goes through a a different planning process Mm. for for a project of this size and, and a wind farm. But as far as I know, yes, you'd still be able to because you look at those responses, you might be able to, that might trigger something else from there. But I think it's interesting just to look at that. In the submission responses, you'll see a couple of things that might be of interest to you. One is workers' accommodation. Squadron have talked to Dubbo Regional Council about taking some land in Keswick mm. to build a workers' accommodation. Now, Squadron's the group that's going to be setting up uh, this, isn't it? Correct. Squadron is the company. This right. is the one owned by... Andrew Forrest, Twiggy Forrest. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah right. And in general, our dealings with Squadron have been very impressive. I mm. met with Jason Willoughby, the CEO. You may remember we talked about that mm. some time ago. Yep. But we've found them pretty good to deal with in terms of the words that they've spoken and the commitment they've given. Mm. We haven't seen it on the ground yet, mm. but we've certainly found them very good from that perspective. Mm. And even Penny Sharp, when we were talking about Squadron Energy, she was actually impressed. They seem to be one of those organisations that really wants to make sure they do the right thing, yep. they leave a lasting legacy. It's not just about the bottom dollar. They'll make money, I'm yep. sure, yep. but it's not solely focused on the bottom dollar, which okay. is quite pleasing to hear. But again, Let's see how they progress. Yeah. Sometimes shareholders so say, you're looking here, you're saying you're talking to them about Keswick Estate in, in regards to getting some what some homes that's up there for them? Or Well, what they want to do is they want to build some workers' accommodation somewhere. Now, okay. we're encouraging organisations around the res to do as much in Wellington because we really want to transform Wellington. We mm. know that Dubbo will get benefits out of this regardless. Mm. But just the sheer quantity of workers that they'll need, they just haven't been able to find anywhere in Wellington that will suit them. So they've talked to council about Keswick and said, 
we'd like to take some land, we'd like to build some workers' accommodation, which might scare some people in Keswick, saying, mm. oh, no, I want lovely houses mm. next to me. I don't want homes that look like a mm. mining camp, for example. Mm. I don't want dongers on no, the site no. there. Which is understandable. You can see Absolutely why right. that. Yeah. So we've talked to them and we've expressed those concerns there. Mm. What this would look like, and there's no decision being made yet, but there's just a discussion. What this would look like would be a parcel of land in Keswick where there aren't homes next door to it yet. They would lease that land off council rather than buy it. Mm. They would then put in the infrastructure. We'd give them a basic map of the sort of infrastructure that we would want for housing to go there, normal housing to go there eventually. So I'm talking about underground sewage and water and Mm. telecommunications and power, all the things we normally expect to see. What they'll do in the short term is they'll build better standard, better style workers' accommodation on that. And then in five years' time, seven years' time, whatever time frame it might be when they're finished with that, they'll take away their workers' accommodation. What they'll leave council will be land that's mm. already got all the underground infrastructure put in place mm. without the cost to council. Mm. They'll have to do some roads. They'll have to do some various activities there, which will be a saving to council. Fantastic. Would and they then, also see this maybe as like a, a separate estate, like almost like an enclosed area? Is, is that their, sort of their plan? Uh, it probably wouldn't be an enclosed area, right. but it would be an area that hasn't got houses built right next to it yet. Yeah. So yeah. I don't think there's going to be someone looking out across the yeah, front yard yeah. today and seeing a vacant block, and tomorrow there's a yeah. workers' camp there. Yeah. It'll be a bit further away, but in seven years' time, for example, there might be other houses built mm. up around it because Keswick is exploding as people are building mm. throughout there. Mm. But what we'll be left with is an area that we can then develop where someone else has paid for all of that infrastructure. So mm. a cost-saving to council, fantastic. We'll also charge them a lease fee on an annual basis. And again, so that'll be income for council. And then at the end of that time frame, we still own mm. the land. So at no stage are we talking about selling that land. So that's all good. So again, we've got more work to do on that. We've got to go through a process that would go through a public council meeting, et cetera. All yep. we've had so far have been some discussions. But when people look at this submission responses from the EIS, that will be, because one thing they've got to solve as part of their whole process is where people are going to live. Mm. So that'll be one thing, just keep your eye for it. People might sit and go, hold on, I didn't know anything about this. Mm. Well, mm. it's probably not at the stage that you need to know a lot about it yet, but certainly... So it's an idea in, in a conceptual, uh, conceptual idea right now that if you're up there living in Keswick Estate, um, like there might be a few listeners up here now, um, may not necessarily be so excited by that. Um Others will probably sit back and go, oh, that's fantastic, it's great, I think it's good use of the space and get people in and, you know, council benefits from it. But there may be some residents that may feel, no, I don't necessarily want this near where I'm living. Um, it, is there going to be a point in time that that they're going to get their opportunity to have their say on this? Yeah, so we've still got a lot of work to do yet. It's really been that sort of first-level discussion. And the reason I mention it is because if people read the document that comes out from Squadron this week, they might see reference to that. And again, it's no decision made by council. It would have had to go through a public council meeting. It would have had to go through from a resolution from councillors. Yeah. All we've done so far is we've had a workshop, we've had a bit of a discussion, but as you know, no decisions are made yeah. at workshops. But yeah. you've got to start somewhere. You've got to yeah. start these discussions somewhere. It's not as if everyone that knocks on our door and says, council, I'm interested in this stop. Mm. We can't go any further. We've got to go to a council meeting for that. Mm. You've got to have some discussion before you get to that level. Yep. The other part, which is very exciting, is that They might need some water, for example, to produce some green hydrogen. They might need some quantities of water. And at the moment, it's expensive to go and buy water licences and there's not a lot of excess water hanging around that people can go and access there. So Mm. people are selling water in terms of licences for water, but you're paying a fair bit for it. They've talked about the idea of taking our 
treated effluent right. and using that, but it's not at a high enough standard when it comes out of our sewage treatment plant. This was a problem in the past, wasn't it, with, with the use of this? Uh, there was an idea, a concept that they had, a previous council had in regards to it, didn't they? Correct, that's right, and they didn't yeah. research it enough and then they thought they could put a pipe in the ground mm. and run some water from there down to near the water treatment plant, but they hadn't researched it far enough. Well, no. they had researched they hadn't read the papers where the research told them right, quite clearly okay. that they needed yeah. to treat the water to a higher level mm. before they could use those pipes. So we've got pipes in the ground now, $5 million were spent mm. by the last council mm. putting pipes in the ground that can't be used. Can't be used right now. But there might be some little tiny glimmer of light at the end of the tunnel yeah. because we've been working on ways, how can we take advantage of those pipes we don't want to go and create a whole solution just to take advantage of the fact that some people didn't make a good decision. Mm. But this is one where we've talked to them briefly, and again, this might be in the documents that come out this mm. week, where we've said, maybe, Squadron, you could actually build a facility that would treat that water out of our sewage treatment okay. to a high enough standard for you to use yeah, yeah. for your production. But then when we've got a dry year maybe then we could have priority of that water over yeah. your production for, yeah. you know, people end up able to drink it, for example. Yep. So that's getting... Just getting back to the, the drinking the poo stuff we talked about right, last week. Yeah. Now, is, I'm not so. sure if it'll go that far. It might just be used <laughs> to water some fields where we can't water them yes. now. But yes. bottom line is we might get a good outcome for Squadron. Mm. We might get a good outcome for the community to get yeah. something built not at our cost. Yeah. So everyone's a winner in that scenario. Yeah. Don't know what the final solution for that will be but again you might see something along those lines mm. in that documentation that comes out from squadron this week so keep an eye for that but things are happening things are happening yep. on a lot of different fronts there's a lot of things happening at the same time a lot of balls in the air at the moment yep. and this is still only near the very beginning mm. of things that are happening with the res mm. you'll see a lot of activity around this res mm. and things will start to happen where people will see that part of the problem we've got with not enough employees to work at the pool is a lot of our employees mm. are being taken up by these new job opportunities. Yeah. So it's that problem we've got, isn't it? We want more people to come to fill all these positions. We need the housing for them to live absolutely. in. It's this constant yeah, problem we've got. It's but it's a good act. problem. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly right. And mate, very quickly, uh, looks as though the last council meeting for the year is going to come up this, uh, this week. So you're back in time. You've come back from your trip away in Japan and you've come back here just in time for the last council meeting of the year. Is that right? Is this the last one coming up? Exactly right. So Thursday, the 14th of December, normal time, 5.30pm. Yeah. Come along physically. This one's in Dubbo. Mm -hmm. Come along, sit in the gallery if you want. Tune in online, watch that. Yep. Last council meeting before Christmas, obviously. So Will Santa be there? Uh, I assume that that's how I'll be dressed. I assume <laughs> that I'll just turn up just as Santa. <laughs> but it's, it's something that it's nice to, to get to the end of the year and kind of reflect yeah. back. I, I haven't actually done it yet, but I'll probably reflect a little bit back on the year. I normally do a bit of a summary of what's happening in the month at the end of the council meeting, each meeting. Yep. But I'll probably do a bit of a reflection on the year because it's been a busy year, lots of activity, lots of successes in council. I think yeah. things are, are going fantastically well. Wonderful. And so, yeah, look, Tune in, I suppose. Keep an eye out. I won't go through some of the things in the meeting. Mm. We normally talk, talk about, about that next week. after the meeting. Yep. But keep an eye out. Tune in. We always like to see people come along and certainly tune in online. Yeah, absolutely. This Thursday. Now, it is the season to be jolly. It is uh, Christmas coming up. We all love a bit of Christmas. But, of course, everyone's entitled to a little bit of time off at this time of the year. Um, which normally means the fact that uh, with council, that also means our council workers. They're just as entitled to some time off like everybody else. So, Matt, Christmas closures. Um, just briefly, yeah, what are some of the main Christmas closures? Just sort of to update our listeners in regards to um, which places are going to be closed and when. Yeah, and I won't go through all of them. A couple of the main ones. Yeah, I'll go through some of the main ones. And 
keep in mind that there are some emergency numbers, which I'll give you in a moment as well. But I don't take a break. So if people need to contact me, contact me 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 3am in the morning is always up for a call. Exactly right. I just assume <laughs> that the mayor is available anytime. And again, if I'm yep. meeting someone or I'm recording a podcast, I'm not going to yeah. take your phone call, but I'll certainly ring you back or answer emails, etc. So I assume that councillors, and I won't talk for the other councillors, but certainly as mayor, I, I assume that I don't get a break, but our staff do definitely. So if you do have an emergency, just ring the normal number, 68014000. After hours, that goes through to an emergency service so right. that if you do have something where you so see... Is, there'll be a skeleton staff, is there? Like well, a Christmas staff? Or? we have staff on call yeah, okay. so that for an emergency, so a burst water main, we're not going to say, oh yeah, we're back in a couple of weeks' time, mm. we'll just leave that mm. water running we'll out. We'll see on the 28th. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right, <laughs> or, or next year even. Yeah, that's right. So we've got a process in place that if you ring 68014000, it does go through, leave your information there, mm. and someone will come back. I'm not saying... Oh, I've decided to pay my rates now. It's Christmas Day. Mm. I better leave a call in that emergency service. You're probably not going to get someone to ring back immediately. <laughs> but if right. it's a if it's a blocked public toilet, if it's a burst mm. water main, or there's some issue that involves council that's an emergency, absolutely yeah. ring that number still. Uh, and if someone rang me, for example, after hours, I would take their information and I would just ring six eight zero one four thousand. I've got right. no special number that I ring. I'll ring that and it would go through that process. The actual building, so the council building at Dubbo and Wellington, the branches, if you like closed from Christmas Day, so yep. they'll be open on Christmas Eve, and closed on Christmas Day, reopened on the 8th of January. Okay, so it's a reasonable break there. It is a reasonable yep. break, and we've looked at that previously. We typically have opened up at the beginning of January, after New Year's Day, etc., mm. but we just found the number of people who were doing things then, not a lot, not a lot of people lodging DAs or doing yep. building applications. Not a lot of people are coming to pay their rates. So we just found that it was pretty quiet then to give the staff a little bit more time. Have a good it's break. always referred to January as the, the builder's holiday month. Well, spot on there. And then you've got a few things. So just, for example, Old Dubbo Jail, mm-hmm. it's open every day except Christmas Day. So okay. if you've got friends around, take them down there. Boxing Day, sure thing. Visit Information Centre, closing, that's in Wellington and Dubbo, closing mm-hmm. on two days. So Christmas Day and Boxing Day for those two. Okay. Again, when you go through and look at a whole range of things, I suppose the best thing to do is just look at the actual www.nsw.gov.au, look at the website and see, mm. because you've got different things. So you've got different dates for the Wellington Cave, you've got Potential Gardens, Western Place Cultural Centre, the library, lots of different facilities yeah. we've got. Even the waste disposal facility, that's only closed on Christmas Day. Right. So if you want to clamp some rubbish around the house over Christmas. You've yep. got the family home, for example. Plenty hey, of opportunity still. There's only one day there. That's so, right. While uh, you're home, just yep. give us a hand, will you? And <laughs> you might get your kids to come home again. So yes. even the pools, they're closed just on Christmas Day. Okay. So a whole range of different facilities there. And again, I won't, I've run through a few of them there, but I won't yeah. go through all of them. So it sounds like Christmas Day is probably the main day that most things are closed. But outside of that, quite a lot of the uh, facilities are open. Yeah, but think about Rainbow Cottage, for example. They're mm-hmm. open for a bigger break as well. So if there's some of those services that are uh, not tourist-related and not essential-related like a, mm. a, the Wild Andrew Waste Depot, then they're probably going to be closed mm. for a bit longer over that period. But just have a look on the website. Yeah. Be mindful of the fact. Don't turn up on Christmas Day and go, oh, Ultimate mm. Jail's not open. Mm. How can they not be open on Christmas Day? What's right. going on? Why didn't someone tell me about that? Yeah, yeah. So it's really just have a look, have a think about some of those facilities and mm. where possible we keep them open. But again, giving the staff a break, but it's also expensive for us mm. to keep some of those facilities open. If we had Ultimate Jail open on Christmas Day, it would be mm. very expensive for us, for example. But all the staff out there, enjoy your break. Exactly right. Now, Matt, it looks like... Uh 
there's been some settlement uh, in regards to the Southern Distributor land. Uh, now, this is the Southern Distributor uh, coming off uh, Hennessy Drive there, sort of uh, going around the back, which will eventually uh, connect up to the Blue Ridge Link Road. Um, so when, you, when we say settlement here, has Council purchased the land now so that it's, it's ready to rock and roll when the time comes? So we're doing some long-term planning, and what we'll see in Dubbo, and I'm talking maybe 10 years now, as you go around Macquarie Street, around the outskirts of Dubbo, and we call this the Southern Distributor, yep. you'll go along there, you go into Old Dubbo Road for a short part, and then you'll turn down Hennessy. Yep. And as you have Hennessy now, you get down to Wheelers Lane, you turn left on Wheelers Lane. Mm, but mm. there's a huge number of houses that are being built there mm. in Keswick. Yep. So the plan is that we think a better solution for people that are just trying to go from maybe parts of Dubbo in the south to maybe parts of Dubbo in the west will be to go around the outside of that Keswick estate. So essentially, we've bought some land along there for that Hennessy Drive to extend down down past the development there, then turn left and eventually join up with Sheraton and then, as you said, go into Blue Ridge Link yep. Road through there. It might be you might live in West Dubbo, you might want to take your kids to school that might be up around Sheraton Road, and we're probably talking about as we build a bridge that's going to be south of LH4 mm. Bridge. We've talked about a Tamworth Street bridge or somewhere around there. Mm. You're in West Dubbo, you might say, well, it's better for me to go across that bridge there when it exists, yep. loop around Macquarie Street, up Hennessy Drive and along Sheraton, a lot of that area will be 60 k's an hour, maybe 70 k's an hour yeah. for some parts of that, yeah. rather than going through residential streets at 50 k's an hour, for example. So overall, we needed to plan for that. Now, mm. that was all great to plan for that. Mm. There's a road there at Hennessy, but it's not going to be big enough, and we need some more land as we turn around and go mm. left or go north along there. So there's some land owned by Mars, so we've had some negotiations and discussions. So we've now bought that land that's now settled. Okay. We're not going to use that tomorrow. Yeah. So it's like the 10-year plan. This is the, it's the strategic the planning. Plan. Yeah. That's right. And you'd probably argue that we should have bought that land a few years ago, but I don't think people were looking strategically a few years yeah. ago. This Hindsight's a wonderful thing. Yeah, it is. That's right. This council's certainly looking more strategically. Mm. Mm. So we'll buy that land or we've bought that land, but we won't do anything with it. It's a big picture plan. And also, who pays for that land mm. or that road? Who's going to be doing that? Is it something we put in grants for over the years? Quite probably. But we've got the land, that's the important part, because the last thing you want to do is say, oh, one day that'll be good, do nothing about it, mm. and houses keep getting built there, other roads are built, and then suddenly we come along one day and say, oh, we'd like that land, well, that land would be more expensive then, mm. and you might start having to buy houses of people, it gets very expensive Absolutely. to do that. Yeah. So getting it when it's just a dirt paddock and a bit of a laneway at the moment is much smarter than waiting until down the track. Is, is this stage. going to, uh, so this, of course, this, that's part of the 10-year plan, but uh, we talked there about Blue Ridge Link. What, what's happening there with that? Just in regards to, is that about to, uh, to to start, that Blue Ridge Link? So we've got the two, if you remember. We've got one where we're trying to get traffic off Sheraton Road. Mm. So we've got one part of that that will build through and then the traffic will go through Blue Ridge. Yep. Let's call that Blue Ridge Link Road Phase 1 or Stage 1. Oh, that's very creative of you. And <laughs> then the bigger picture plan from that is to then basically take that traffic not through the Blue Ridge Industrial Estate there is it'll actually turn up and go straight off to the Newell Highway. Mm, so there'll be mm. a, a stage two of that one there. The stage one, we want to get stage one done, get that link road done to the point where we'll take the heavy traffic off 
Sheraton Road, yep. and then traffic can go along on that what's, part. What's the time frame with that? We've got a time frame for that? Or? Yeah, we have. I think we talked about it before to say that we'll probably get towards the end of next year before okay. we'll have that part done. So it's not a quick thing to do. No. And, and then sometime in that following year, so I'm now talking about 2026, yeah. we'll get that Sheraton Road done to a level that should be done at. Yeah. And I had actually someone inquire about that during the week. They said, oh, we've got these big trucks on Sheraton Road and on Mile Street. Are they allowed to be there? Mm. Well, in general, unless it's a B-double or a road train, and there are specific B-double and road train routes, mm. road train routes is nowhere on the maps that I'm aware of that road trains are allowed on Mile or Sheraton. But certainly B-doubles, there are certain parts of Mile Street, for example, where B-doubles are allowed, sometimes allowed all the time, other times with certain traffic conditions associated with that. But if you're just seeing trucks typically, and this isn't hard and fast, but give people an idea, Mm. if the trucks are below 42.5 tonnes and they're not oversize, typically they're allowed on just about every road. Yeah, right. Okay, I didn't know that. Now, I would call Sheraton and Mile not necessarily residential roads Mm. i'd call them more a distributor road Mm. a trunk road they're in residential areas but not a little street that winds through just some little tiny residential areas but generally you're going to see trucks they are thoroughfare roads aren't they They you've got the double distribution on either side and the two lanes and all that sort of stuff happening so i can understand why that would be how people would interpret it that way yeah that's right and people say it's getting busier and there's more trucks Mm. and i would say yes Dubbo's getting bigger yeah. Exactly right. It was growing, it was booming, actually. So you're going to see more of that, unfortunately. And they do do more damage to the roads. And it's not great. I mean, I ride a push bike, and it's not great when you see trucks coming along those roads. And individual drivers sometimes aren't perfect. But in general, those trucks are legally able to go on there. It's our responsibility to make sure we build roads accordingly. So that's a, an ongoing challenge for us. Sounds good. Now, Meryl Memo. Congratulations, uh, you're up to number 100. So, uh, did you get a letter from the king? Another century, you think? Yes, there it is, eh? Bradman, <laughs> you. <laughs> 100 Meryl Memos, that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and I actually thought about it, and well, I haven't missed one. So when I first was elected mayor for Dubbo Regional Council, yep. I used to write a mayoral column in the Daily Liberal when I was mayor of Dubbo City Council. So I said to the Liberal again, would you like me to write a mayoral column? They said, yes, we'd like you to do that again. Can you start? next year so it was a December election so I started from then once I wrote number one Mm. then I haven't skipped one and again that's the thing I talk about over Christmas over New Year. It's very disciplined of you to be honest to to write 100 not miss one that's that's well, what's more disciplined is the number of words. Everyone has had an identical word count. The You're word kidding. count, the word count that they asked for. I'm a bit pedantic about it because they asked for a word count, <laughs> right. and every single one has got the identical. Word so tell count. me the total word count. What's your word count? Four seventy for those. Four hundred seventy. Four hundred seventy. Oh, oh, for each one's four seventy. Yeah. 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 Sorry. Yeah. For, so total. If I actually I was go back, say four point seven words million. per uh, memo. <laughs> right. Someone may say that's all you need, but I don't know. <laughs> <Maybe>. <laughs> so if I look at all of them, if I actually go back, I wrote two hundred and forty-two columns for my role as Dubbo City Council Mayor, right. and now 100, as you mentioned there. Yeah. So I estimate about 165,000 words in those. Oh, there you go. That's probably two novels worth. Yeah, that's probably yeah. Yeah, that's probably about right, yeah. And so I started thinking about it, actually. I thought, well, what can I do in my 100th column? What can I reflect mm. on? What can I talk about? And one of the things I thought about reflecting on was the two-year anniversary. So on the 4th of December... Of the council. Yeah, yeah 2021... Yeah. 4th of December was the election. Yes. So do I count it from that point or do I count it when the council election was declared? Let's Mm. go from the election day because kind of from that point in time, most councillors knew they were elected. They weren't officially in the role. But so it's two years. So congratulations to all this group of council. Yeah, that's right. And for nine of us, Mm. that's 
the first two years ever under a regional council. Oh, one well, council so that's, that's an achievement. It really is. is. Yeah, one yeah. council was re-elected, but nine of us first time ever on that. And so I started thinking about what I could reflect on and just thought about the variety of topics that we've had over those times. But I thought more about, rather than looking back in the past, looking more in the future. And I think one of the things that was interesting was having an international trip, which we're going to talk about mm. in a moment, yep. and having that international trip when it was the time when I was writing that 100th anniversary or 100th mayoral column, if you like. And so I just thought it's actually quite interesting, this whole concept of international relations and how you can utilise those. Mm. And let's be really philosophical for a moment. I know my Rotary Club, I was our youth officer years ago, and so Mm. I dealt with exchanges, and it really brought the world closer together, having some of those international relations and understanding more Mm. about the differences and the similarities amongst people across the world. We're all people, Yes, absolutely we are. And I thought about one story that I learned from a previous visit to Japan when I went through the museum at Hiroshima. And it talked about, there was a letter in there talking about where they were going to bomb. I mean, this is a pretty serious Mm. decision about Mm. where you're going to bomb. And it was interesting because there was a committee set up to look at where to bomb, but Mm. there were two people who could override that committee. Imagine being on that committee, they'd have to make that decision. Exactly right. And then it Mm. came back, and one of those people that made the ultimate decision was the US Secretary of War, Henry L. Stimson. Right. And one of the places it was recommended was Kyoto. Yeah, right. That's right. Now... He said, Henry Stimson said, don't bomb Kyoto. I had my honeymoon there many years before the war, and it was a beautiful place. So let's go somewhere else. Is that right? So just the fact that he'd visited there saved Kyoto from being bombed. Again, that's getting, Mm. that's a bit lucky, that one, and it's getting a bit philosophical. But Mm. I just think what we can learn going forward and how we can make the community better, let's not keep looking over our shoulders, let's look forward and let's go, well, there's 100 columns written, fantastic. So I'm not going to reflect on those. Let's look forward and see what we can do going Mm. forward. So that might be a segue into the next topic I might talk about. Oh, I like it. Let's do it. Now, as you said, speaking of uh, Japan and uh, a little nice little segue you managed to create for me there, You've just come back from Japan. You've spent uh, the last week over there. Last time I saw you, uh, you were getting ready to get on the plane. Uh, now I saw you and just got literally got off the plane, thank God, with the little bouncy uh, landing there. But let's talk about this. Um, just remind uh, our listeners in regards to what this was all about. Uh, talk to us, first of all, about why you went and, and who this group Claire was. Now, Claire's the group who organised the trip. Um, just sort of give a little brief rundown because I know there's, there's been a little bit of... Uh, Let's say social media bashing, um, which seems to sort of come in, sort of line with uh, being the mayor around here. Um, and there's been some comments there made about, oh, it's, it's a junket. It's uh, it's councils paid for it, and uh, you know, and, and how, how dare you use uh, ratepayers' money to go off there over to Japan for a week? So I know the, the, the story, but let's talk it through in regards to this, and so we get all this clarified. First of all, Matt, uh, who's paid for the trip? Why'd you go and who's Claire? So, lots of questions there. So, <laughs> so, I'll actually go back even further than that. The policy of council, since I was elected in 2004, and I don't know how many years before that, was that council did not pay for councillors to go overseas. Not yep. a part payment, not a little bit of payment. If councils are going overseas, even though you might be representing Dubbo, then you paid for that yourself. And yeah. I was quite comfortable with that. And some people have said that's a bit unfair because not every councillor could afford to go on a trip. Mm. But again, it's pretty hard to justify fully the expense of those trips. And I know 
other councils do. And, and one perfect example, I'm not picking on anyone here in particular, but I know that Tamworth, the mm-hmm. mayor and the general manager, have been to Nashville on several occasions, mm-hmm. and councillors paid for that for those individuals. And the reason they do that is because they look at what they do in Nashville and then they want to compare that to the Tamworth Country Music Festival and what mm. can they learn from that. Yeah. I don't have a problem with that, but again, they get a bit of a hammering from the community when they do that and yep. spend ratepayers' money on that. But I've been overseas four separate occasions okay. representing Dubbo. Yep. And I've paid for all of those myself. On some of those occasions, I've taken my wife and my children. Again, yep. I've paid for those or, or our family has paid for all of those ourselves. Yep. And other occasions I've been over by myself. So I've been over in May 2012. I went to Wuzhang. Mm-hmm. And on in that, China. Uh, yeah. Wuzhang in China, which is our sister city there. Yeah. And I watched Richard Mutton, who was a councillor at the time, be made an honorary citizen of Wuzhang. Oh, right. And so, and I had my wife and our four children. I didn't realise Richard was an honorary citizen Honorary of citizen of Wuzhang, that's okay. exactly there right. Yeah, for the good work that he'd done with some of the exchange programs, yeah, right. they made him, him honorary citizen. Yeah. So that trip, I paid for the trip over there myself. And again, our family went along in that one. Then in June 2013... I spoke at a symposium at Minakamo, which is our Japanese sister city. Mm -hmm. So I went over in June 2013. I uh, paid for that myself and went over and and spoke at the symposium there. Then in November 2014, I went over and celebrated our relationship of 25 years with Minakamo, again, sister city there. So, and and, sorry, on one of those trips, I took my wife and our four children and they were very honoured that we were... I brought along my wife mm. and, and our children as part of that trip. Mm. Again, all of those trips are paid for, all of the, the flights, et cetera, are paid for by our family. Yep. And then this one here, uh, those previous three, sorry, were as Mayor of Dubbo City Council. This yep. trip here I've been on. Then again, I've paid for the flights over there. So that kind of answers the trip a little bit about mm. the cost. But I'll go further. Claire is an organisation, which is a Japanese-based organisation. It stands for Council of Local Authorities for International Relations. Right. They've got a number of offices around the world. Seven would be my guess, but mm. you can look it up on their website. So they're an international group. They're, well, they're a Japanese organisation okay. that has offices in international locations. They've yep. got an, an office in Sydney. I've dealt with them before for anything that involves international relations with Japan. I've dealt with them before, for example, with our sister cities. Okay. Good organisation, well-run yep. organisation. And again, those offices around the world, they've got set up there. They like to do, they call it a seminar. A seminar to me normally says one day, but a seminar for them is, is say, four days. Yeah, right. They like to do a seminar once every couple of years where they have people go across from Australia over to Japan on an official delegation. Hmm. So they send out an expression of interest. I'm assuming that if you're a counsellor, maybe a high-level executive at a council, but obviously it's all to do with Council. So yep. you want people involved in council to go on that. They sent out an expression of interest said, we would like to have people tell us if you're interested in going across on this next trip that we're doing. At so the potentially um, all aldermen, councillors uh, across Australia could well have received this email. Potentially. Yeah, I'm not sure how far it went, who mm. it went to. It came to, to me. Yep. Again, you certainly I, got I, a copy. I, I've yeah. dealt with them before, so it might have. They might have selected who it went to. They might have gone out to different okay. ones. I don't know who it went to, but I received a copy, and I said, "Well, that time frame that works well." I'm not at a council meeting at that particular time, so I could do that. My wife had tickets to Harry Connick Jr. that she'd bought, so I was a bit uncertain whether I could get away <laughs> with it. My wife not going to that concert, but in general, the dates were okay, Good. and so I said, "Look, I'd be interested to tell me more information." They came back and said, give us some more information about yourself. Hmm. You know, they had some questions to, to fill in as any sort of process there. Yep. I filled in those further questions, sent that off to them. And then 
I don't know how many applications they get, but there yeah. are five positions. That's it. They've yeah. only got five spots for the delegation. They came back then and said to me, thank you. We received information. We know you are. We looked at that information further. And yes, you've been selected to go along on that delegation, one of the five. Mm. And furthermore, with your background experience, et cetera, et cetera, we would like you to be the official leader of this delegation. Oh, okay. Yep. Now as leader, and there was no box to say, yes, I want to be the leader. I didn't even know they had a leader of the delegation yep. per se. So they read through your profile and all the stuff you put in there and they made this decision themselves. Claire did. Correct. That's exactly yep. right. And basically they said, as leader of the delegation, you would be required to be the one that makes some speeches and to receive some gifts from the various people that might be giving you gifts because mm. Japanese people are very big on giving gifts mm. and they might be received on behalf of the delegation, etc. So uh, are you willing to undertake that role as leader of the delegation? So mm. nice. I said, yes, I was happy to do that. And so the process was that you bought your own plane tickets. I did that. Yeah. And then once you landed at Tokyo, Claire organised the rest of it from there. So I had someone at the airport who had gone to the trouble of buying a ticket for a bus for me so I could get on a bus and go from the airport into Tokyo and then stayed at a motel, which, again, Claire paid for. So Mm. Claire basically paid for the meals, the accommodation, and the internal transfers, whether it be bus or Mm. plane. And so basically you could do that. Anything extra from there, any other expenses Mm. from your own perspective you paid for yourself, but very well organised and a good group of people. So we had... The Mayor of Bunbury was along. Right. We had a councillor from New Zealand. Yep. And then we had two senior staff. One senior staff member was a gentleman who manages 11 councils in a collective type organisation in South Australia. Yep. And another one who was undertaking the role of a CEO in a New Zealand council. So it was yep. Australian New Zealand delegation. Okay. So a good group. So two senior executives and three councillors, two of those councillors happen to be yep. mayors. And so they, and they like that idea. They like they, they didn't want five mayors, for example, because five mayors have all got a similar viewpoint. They didn't want five mm. CEOs or general managers of council because they've got a slightly different mm. viewpoint. So it was a good mix in talking to Claire themselves. They said yep. this is a really good mix of people there. Because it's actually asked me sort of the question in regards to, like, I can hear, and we'll t- certainly talk about this in regards to what you personally gain from this experience. But I suppose the other part is this, <clears throat> since Claire's, well, that they funded most of the, the trip there for you once you're over there. Um, what did they get from this? Well, Claire is actually funded by local governments in Japan. Right, So okay. Claire is an organisation that says we're going like to... Like an advisory group almost sort of thing, are they? Well, or? they try and improve international relations. Okay. Then they go and talk to the councils that are in Japan and they say, we need funding from you. So that funding is used to help fund trips like this sort yep. of thing. Yep. And they also second staff from local government areas, they've got a maximum of three years and they might use those staff in Japan or they might send those staff to an international office. So, Mm. for example, on one of the nights we had a dinner with the managing director of Clare and two staff that have just started working for Clare, they'll work for them in Tokyo for a year and then they'll come to the Sydney office for two years and then after that they'll go back to their council, their donor council. So the councils across Japan are happy to contribute to Claire because they believe that will build better international okay. relationships. Yeah. So so the funding comes from there. Maybe they get a bit of money from the federal government. I don't know the exact right. funding model. But yeah, it's, and it's not as if they put you up in tents each night. They put mm. you up in reasonable places. Yeah. But they expect their pound of flesh as well. Yeah. So each yeah. day started fairly early. And, it's, and it, for me pers- uh, personally, it's very full on because I'm still the mayor of WA Regional Council mm. when I'm overseas. It used to be, or in fact, the local government access something along these lines that the mayor is the mayor unless he can't undertake the role and then you can nominate 
the deputy mayor or another mm. council to take over those roles. Mm. And way back in about 2005, I think it was, I was deputy mayor and Alan Smith went overseas on a trip mm. that he paid for. He was the mayor at the time. He yep. paid for that trip personally. Yep. And so he officially appointed me to be the mayor for the two weeks while he was overseas. Mm. And he said, mm. it's kind of a bit confusing because he's overseas representing Dubbo and he's nominated or seen as the mayor of Dubbo mm. while he's doing things overseas, obviously, because you're dealing with a mm. mayor. But then back in Dubbo, I was officially the mayor of Dubbo okay. while yep. I was undertaking the role and replying to correspondence and making decisions the same as Alan would have when yep. I was when he was here, for example. Now communications have improved quite dramatically. Mm. So what I would do typically is I'd get up early in the morning and I'm talking about 4.30, maybe 5 o'clock each morning right? in, yes. in Japanese yep. time. They're about two hours behind. Yep. I'd still undertake interviews that I had lined up that my normal standing interviews that I do, okay. I would write my mayoral memo, my 100th mayoral memo, for example. Yeah, I, yeah. I wrote very early one morning. I'd still make some phone calls that I needed to make, catch up on any phone mm. calls, answer emails, that type of thing. Mm. And so by the time it got to about 8 o'clock in the morning, I've done a lot of that. I'd go and have breakfast with our group, usually 8.30, mm. sometimes a bit early, but usually about 8.30. We're on the bus for the next part of the trip. So I'd already been up and Sounds done. Sounds like half your day's already done for the well, same thing. I've probably done yeah, four yeah. hours of work there. That's right. And then at a lunch time where we might stop to have lunch, for example, I might just duck out and answer a few more. When do you have your emails. sleep in the afternoon? Did you have a little cup? No, no, no chance for that. <laughs> Maybe that's me. If it was me, that's what I'd be doing, I'll tell you now. <laughs> and then you're still at official functions that night at eight or nine o'clock. Yeah, so yes. it's a fairly long day, fairly yep. busy day. And again, someone who said, Oh, what a great junket. Well, if it was a junket, mm. I'd be there with my wife, with my feet up, taking it easy. That's right. It's pretty full on. And you've got yeah. to be attentive the whole day and you're using a translator to communicate. Sometimes I'd use an app that I had on my phone. Yep. So you've really got to concentrate the whole day and be on your game as mm. such to make sure you're, you're doing well, those it. Those multivitamin tablets you're taking must be working very well for you. <laughs> indeed, indeed. <laughs> now, I want to ask you a bit of a broad question here in regards to uh, what you actually gain from the trip. Uh, similarities and differences. Um, I'd be suggesting the fact that going across over there, um, it's a bit of that same, same, but different type scenario. Um, can I get you started off in regards to some of these similarities and differences, just in regards to housing? Um, this is an issue that, that we face here. And is, is it the same issue over in Japan? Well, it's the opposite issue. And so what I might do, if it's okay with you, is yeah. I might just talk about a broader picture of local government in Japan. Because mm. the first morning started off with a professor from a university in Tokyo. Yeah. Who, and we sat down like we're in a classroom and he gave us a lecture about Japanese local government. Mm. And it was quite interesting. It was, it was very well done and certainly had a PowerPoint presentation. I had some handouts there and we learned about local government in Japan. So I'll talk a bit about that if that's okay. If, yeah, yeah, and that yeah. will answer your question that okay, you're talking cool. about. Okay, cool. As long as you get into that, that'd be great. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So the first thing was we talked about the number, and there are 1,718 municipalities. Right. That's the equivalent of our local government area. So okay. we've got 537 here in Australia. The New Zealand delegates weren't sure exactly how many they had in New Zealand. Yeah, but we'd be 40 times the size of, we're, of the we're, country-wise. What are we, 25 million? They're 128 million. Yeah. So they're, they're, yeah, so, so, so they're number-wise. Our size-wise, the physical size. Physical, that's right. So they'd be five so times the population. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. in terms of that, so we're 7.7 million square kilometres, yeah. and they're less than that, significantly yeah. less than that. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> that's right. So... They've got 1,718 local government areas, wow. municipalities, but they've just gone through some mergers across the whole area. Oh, they had okay. about 3,000 until fairly recently, so they've amalgamated yeah, right. down. And they Same reasons why it happened here in, um, in Australia? Same type of idea? Well, to a certain extent, because financial sustainability yeah. was the number one issue. Without a doubt, we talked to the New Zealand group there, or the New Zealand, two people from New Zealand, the, yeah. the three from Australia, and the Japanese what, what's the number one issue there? 
financial sustainability. That's yeah. the number one issue there. So yeah. without a doubt, that was similar. Big similarity there, yeah. Absolutely right. And it was number one with a bullet mm. across all of our areas. Now, what's interesting, though, is those amalgamations I've had weren't forced amalgamations. They were offered some incentives by the national government, mm. sometimes the prefecture government. The prefecture is like the state government. Okay. They were offered some incentives to amalgamate. So if, a bit like Australia as well. Well, We had a financial we, incentive, didn't we, to amalgamate well, with Wellington? We didn't actually get the chance to say no, whereas in these cases they, they could <laughs> say call. no. Yes. And there may be some further amalgamations, but they're pretty comfortable with ours 1,718 at this stage. Mm. One of the reasons that financial sustainability is a huge if, issue for them is that there are different areas that are a responsibility of local government in Japan, but similar to Australia. But mm. one of the things that's absolutely different is that we've got a problem, we've talked about it already today, mm. with a growing population and enough housing. Yeah. Now, I've talked about it, I've joked about it, and it's not really meant to be funny, but but just as an offhand comment, I've said it's a better problem to have too many people coming to your area and not enough housing mm. than the opposite problem, which is people leaving yeah. and then you've got too many houses. And some people say to me, no, no, it would be great to have too many houses, the prices of housing would go down. Well, that's right, but you don't really want to be in an area where the population is declining. No. Japan is that area. Is the that whole right? of Japan. We saw some graphs there that yeah. said 128 million now. The estimation by the year 2050 might be 105 million. Wow. Now, this is forward estimation, yeah. so that's not obviously that's locked scary. on solid. Yeah. But that's a fair decline. So what you've got in local government areas is one of their issues with financial sustainability is the same issues we've got, but also each local government area is declining. If the nation's declining, each local government area can mm. be declining. So then you're getting less money coming in from your uh, residents. Of course. So you're trying to run your local government area with less money coming yep. in from yep. those. So they've actually got the opposite problem in terms of housing, where they've got housing that's being left derelict, housing where it's vacant. They've got plots of land, sometimes agricultural land, where people have walked away. The rates that are owed on some of these houses or plots of land are building up because that person said, well, I just can't afford mm. to pay anymore mm. or no one wants to take over that particular land yep. or maybe the person that lived there has now died and yep. the, the people that were left in the will don't want it because what am I going to do with an extra house? Mm. I don't need an extra house. Mm. So the council is sometimes taking back ownership of these for the mm. unpaid rent or unpaid rates. Oh, sorry, not rent, unpaid so, rates. So I'm also assuming here they're probably an ageing population. They've yeah. got a, a, a shrinking workforce population as well. Yep. This is all combining into the bigger problem. So all these issues. Wow. So, so ageing population and a lower birth rate. So the, the birth rate is declining and the population is ageing, which mm. is fantastic. Japanese people are known for living to be older mm. because they've got good, healthy eating and living styles, mm. and they've got a good health system there. So that's all fantastic. Mm. But that ageing population aren't contributing to the workforce, mm. and so you've got to somehow look after them and somehow pay for people to be looked after. So similar problems along those lines there. Yep. But one of the things that was really interesting, so we've got some of those issues, same, some of those issues that are different. When we look at what is looked after by each level of government, so they had a table on screen that had national prefecture and municipality, so mm. the three levels are the same as we've mm. got. And the things that we all look after are very similar in terms of policing, for example, as a prefecture level. You might have airports uh, done at the national level. So you've got these similar yep. concepts. But one thing that was a bit different was education. Oh, okay. Education is the responsibility of each municipality right. from kindergarten through to year nine. Right. And when I say the responsibility... The prefecture government, the state government, still pays the wages of the teachers, yep. but the running of the school is done by the municipality. So one of the staff members we met right. was the person who was the education director. Right. So his responsibility 
was look after education. So again, not paying the teachers, but looking after how the school is yep. run. They're doing the hiring, the firing, the setting the, the syllabus and the curriculum based, I'm well, sure, from the, probably implementation, making sure it's being implemented correctly. Yeah, the, the, those sort of the, things. The curriculum is a high level, but implementation, yep. you're right. Yep. And just making sure they've got a well-run school and the assets are being kept up to date. Mm. And then from year 10, 11 and 12, the prefecture, the state government, takes over education at those levels. Oh, okay. And the universities are typically done at yep. the national level. Yeah. So that's something that's certainly different, and they found that quite interesting, that we don't do education. Mm. And so, again, that was different. The other one that I found fascinating, they talked about the lecture, and I, I drilled down this with the professor that was giving us the lecture. The ability for the assembly – sorry, I should go back a step. They don't have councillors, they have assembly members. Right. Same right. concept, though. They have an assembly – which is effectively our council. They still have, what, about nine elected? It varied from eight to 86. What? So in a large council area, Yokohama City, for example, is a large council area, they have 86 assembly members there. Wow. Mostly the same as us, mostly eight to maybe 15. So in Australia, we're having 86 councils in a council meeting. Well, it's a bit like a parliament. They kind of see that as a bit like a parliament. Yeah, okay. So it's like having 86 parliament members. But yeah, mainly they're similar sort of size to us. But all of their mayors are popular elected. As we know in Australia, some are popular elected. And the assembly members are elected by the community. But they have this really interesting concept where the assembly members can move a vote of no confidence in the mayor. Because the the mayor is not one of them as such. The mayor is elected by the public directly. So they can do that at a meeting, can they? They can have a a council meeting, call it a council meeting. They call it a a, a meeting of parliament. Call it a council meeting. And they can actually move a motion of no confidence. And if that's approved or or that is resolved, then I'll talk about the next steps in a moment. But I remember when I first got on council, when I was a very young council, I reckon I'd be in the job for two months. Mm. One of our councillors brought forward a motion of no confidence in the mayor. I think it was more politically driven than Mm. any sort of logic associated Mm. with it. And I went, oh, wow, I'm just on council. Mm. Motion of no confidence in the mayor. What does this mean? Yeah, that's right. And I I talked to the council moving it. And the council told me that it meant nothing. It was just a stick it to the mayor. I went, oh, what's the point? I thought they were going to resign or something terrible was going to happen. Go out and give him 40 lashes or something. But no, it was just, and I thought, well, that's a waste of time. Why bother? But in Japan, a bit different. Yeah, right. If, let's say you were the assembly, let's say that you're 10 people and you're not happy with me as the mayor and I'm directly elected by the people. Mm. You can get together and have the discussion and you can move a motion of no confidence. And if that's resolved, mm. then as the mayor, I've got two choices. Right. And I've got 10 days to make up my mind. Right. I can either resign. Yep. I can say the assembly members have said no confidence in me. Mm. The crowd enough. has spoken. Yes. That's right. I resign. And then you hold a new mayoral election so I can go and stand at that again okay. if I want. Or I can just say, yep, I hear what they're saying. Yep. I've done a terrible job. Because, of course, the people elect the mayor in Japan. Correctly, that's right. right. Okay, Elect yep. them directly. Yep. I'll resign and then I'll move on with my life. Or I'll resign, I'll go and stand again. Or mm. I can say, I've heard what you've had to say. And instead of resigning, I'm going to sack all of you. Really? So it's a high risk manoeuvre huh. by the assembly. They refer to a Mexican standoff. <laughs> exactly. Who's going to blink first? <laughs> So, is that right? So the assembly members can move that. Now, they're taking a bit wow. of risk. They might say, this mayor is terrible. Let's get rid of him. Yep. But they, or him or her. But they know that it might bounce straight back to them. Absolutely. And they might find themselves completely sacked. Wow. Now, if it's that a risk happens, you take on both sides, isn't it? It is. If that happens, then there's a new election held right. within 30 days yeah. for a new assembly. Yep. Now, those assembly members can stand again. Wow. Then, three months after that, right. 
the Assembly members can move a vote of no confidence again in the Mayor. Oh, right. But this time the Mayor has no choice but to resign. Oh, really? Yeah. So it's almost like I, I'm going to back myself to the fact that uh, the Mayor's going to probably sack me, but I'm going to back myself to get back on. I think the people will, will vote me back in. Yep. So I'm, I'm still going to put this forward, this motion of the you know no confidence in the Mayor, on the basis of the fact Pretty much thinking I could get back in after this. Get back in three months later, throw it again, and this time around you've got to step down. Yep. Wow. Does, but then I that, could still stand again geez, as mayor. Well, he could too. That's right. Yeah. yeah that's so right. This, this, is this sort of a regular thing? Do they do this no, often over there? No. Or? So I was fascinated by the concept. Yeah. And I said, so how often does it happen? And the professor put up a, a table with how many times it's happened yeah. in each direction, the no confidence and the, the sacking of the assembly yeah. over the last, say, 10 years, and there were – Two, three, three, four. One year it was 17. Oh, okay, but most right. years it's two or three times. And out of 1,718, yeah. that's probably not too many yeah. in general. But it's interesting because that seemed to be the way they solved the problem of mm. the popular elected mayor being at loggerheads with the assembly members. Mm. And mm. that's where, and again, I didn't tell them that our system is better, but that's where I probably prefer the mayor being elected from yeah. the councillors in our system because that removes a lot of that loghead. And again, yeah. if you're not happy with the mayor, the next time the mayor election comes up, you just say, well, sorry, yeah. you're going, no no good, we'll put someone else wow. in to replace you. Nice. So that was quite fascinating. But in many other areas, it's similar. Waste disposal, garbage disposal, all handled by the council. Mm. The councils, different councils, different municipalities end up doing different things depending on what's required for okay. that particular area. Yep. So yeah, a lot of similarities there and a lot of ways to do things. The one thing I suppose I found that was similar but certainly different, was they don't have curbside recycling. They have different bags. You buy a bag from the supermarket right. for different types of recycling or different types of waste, sorry. Mm. It might be cans. It might be general waste that gets burnt. It might be paper waste that could be recycled. And you buy those bags. You pay mm. for those bags about 30 yen, so not much okay. money. Yep. And then when you put that rubbish in, there are collection points around the city. You've got to take your rubbish to there, so no curbside right. collection. Yeah. And you have to put your name on that rubbish. Oh, really? Now, I could put your name on my rubbish. Well, it's like a name and shame. It is exactly right. Because if you don't have your rubbish sorted correctly, right. you would get a knock on the door, a phone call from the council to is say, right? Mark, we look through your aluminium recycling. We noticed a few steel cans in there. What's the go? And you would be incredibly embarrassed by that. The Bunbury Mayor talked about <laughs> the fact that they've been working hard on their compliance for the contamination of their recycling. Right. Yeah, and yeah. they've introduced a system where they can start to find people. But the Japanese local government authority said, we don't need to do that. There would be so much embarrassment Wow. If you had rubbish that wasn't correct, then you would make sure you fix that problem I'm up. I'm so impressed by their level of compliance. Well, they are. That was one thing we found, definitely their level of yeah. compliance. So when we looked at their waste facilities, they had very clean streams of waste for all their different waste streams yeah. because people are very compliant. But I did think about the fact that you've got people, maybe elderly, maybe yeah. people without a car, you've got to get your rubbish from your household into a cage which, again, is different for different days of the week. So See, on Mondays I can take right, aluminium like, and yeah. Tuesday I can take... <laughs> so, so they're going back and forth to this, this place every day. Probably most people on their way to work, they might yeah, do it. Wow. But for a lot of people, how do I get there? A neighbour has to do it, that type of thing. So I can't even remember which day I have to put out the yellow bin. <laughs> that's right. Like, I don't know, I'll go with sort of trying to remember five or six during the week. <laughs> 
Well, is it aluminium man today or is it plastics today? I did say to the mayor, <laughs> is the mayoral election coming up in February next year? And I said, well, if you want to win that election, just promise your residents that you'll do curbside recycling and then get a bit of the concept of the Homer Simpson episode where can't someone else do it? <laughs> Let someone else take care of the rubbish for you. You'll have curbside recycling, but it's expensive. Yeah. We've got curbside recycling. And I said, our community would be horrified mm. if we said, you're going to take your rubbish to a drop-off point. Mm. You've got no more curbside recycling but it would save the money without a doubt. Mm. But I think our community would be horrified. I don't think I'd go out to an election campaign I doing that. I don't think we'd get the same level of compliance somehow. No, that's right. That is very quickly, buddy. Uh, you've obviously had across there for a week. Um, give me some of the highlights, some of the places you've visited. Yeah, very quickly. I'll just talk about some of the areas that I went to and just some of the things that we saw there. Certainly there was the Saga Cebu Clean Centre, hmm. which is basically where all the rubbish goes. Okay. Public can drop off rubbish there, yep. but you get checked to make sure you're from one of the nine local government areas around there that can take rubbish there. If you're outside that, you can't take your rubbish there. Right. But they said no one ever does because people are compliant yeah, in yeah, Japan. That's it, yeah, that's and you pay this to is drop, the rule. We follow the rule. Right. You pay to drop your rubbish off there. But that was where we noticed lots of different areas where there was different recycling in different areas. And then what's left, they burn what's left rather than putting it in oh, landfill. Okay. Because well, they, they wouldn't got, have the land. They haven't got the land. That's yeah. right. So they burn that what's left and they try and generate some power from that. And they do generate a little bit of power, okay. but nowhere near enough to cover the expenses of running that. So that was interesting. And, and that's where we looked at some of those disposal areas, those disposal stations, the little mm. cages we saw. Mm. And then we saw, for example, a, a company that's been doing the job for 40 years now in second generation of doing the collection of all those different areas. So that's outsourced. They outsource mm. the collection from those different cages. Mm. And that company also goes around and collects some of the rubbish from some of the businesses around there. Okay. And we looked at a recycling plan. Again, a lot of paper recycling. People bring in their recycling. Mm. Different areas, there were a number of cages set up that people drop off their recycling. And again, they said they have very low contamination. Mm. And I, I remember looking through it there and some of the other delegates were saying, wow, you just wouldn't see such low levels of contamination yeah. in Australia. So very good from that perspective. We saw a range of things there from an agricultural perspective. And that was interesting as well. So we saw one example where there was a parcel of land that council had taken back over because, again, their rates hadn't been paid. Right. And there was a, a gentleman that approached them and said, look, I can't afford to buy that land. I can't afford to pay the back rates, but I reckon I could run a strawberry farm. Mm. I can build a greenhouse and I can do a strawberry farm where people come and pay to pick their own strawberries. Oh, right, okay. So it was yep. a good concept. Yep. And so council now is leasing that land to this gentleman. Yep. Over a twenty year lease. That's creative, isn't it? It is because again, yeah. they're trying to work out what to do with these yeah, vacant yeah. plots of land. Yeah. So you've got some businesses like that. There was a, a another greenhouse. There was a tomato greenhouse. They owned that land, but mm. running very small. And one of the members of the delegation said to me, "It feels like the opposite of globalization. I don't mm. know if localization is a word, mm. but it felt like the localization. Localization. We can run with it. Yeah, let's let's do it. Let's, <laughs> that's it. I'm happy. Probably have the new word there. So there were there was a greenhouse with strawberries, a greenhouse with tomatoes, a greenhouse with chrysanthemums right. that were mainly used in the funeral industry. Yes. All of these were basically delivering their product to the local market. Yeah, it might right. have gone outside Kahuku Town was yep. the place we're in, but it certainly didn't go to Tokyo. It yeah. certainly stayed fairly local. It's like an overgrown farmer's market. Yeah, yeah, to a certain mm. extent. Now, Kahuku Town's small. It's a population under 10,000, mm. 24.88 square kilometres, and mm. a fair bit of that lies on a lowland area okay. that's five metres, no more than five metres above sea level. So climate change is a big issue yeah, for them. Big time. But even we looked at some open plots that were used for things like rice and wheat farming, mm. irrigated, it's all irrigated, of course, and there'd be a plot that wasn't that big, maybe two football fields, mm. and that would be owned by one person. And they had their tractor, 
and they maybe had one and a half metre uh, sort of tillage area oh, on the yes, back of it yes, there. Yes. And so that was their plot. They owned their tractor. They, they farmed right. their plot. And the next to them, there might have been 20 of these football fields there. And yeah. the, the farm next to them was run by someone else who owned their own tractor and did their own work on Is there. Right? So very small farming. Yeah. And again, most of that produce was produced for the local market. And they grew wheat in those sort of they things. They grew wheat in wow. some of them. They grew rice in some of them. So Jeez. they grew a whole range of things there. So that I certainly found quite fascinating. Yeah. There was a, a cattle barn which looked a bit tough. There was, it looked like a chicken battery hens you would uh, see okay. all cooped up like that. Cattle dealt with in the same way because they don't have enough land mm. for those cattle to get around those mm. areas. We also saw some of the engineering there where they've got a levee bank around there because you do have two rivers that meet in one area just outside mm. the levee bank and that's influenced by tidal areas as well. So there's mm. the Ariaki Sea, I think it's pronounced, that comes in there. So they get some tidal water that comes in and out. Yeah. So six metre difference in that yeah, from right. top to bottom. So wow. that's very big. But they also get more rain. So they're talking about some of these weather events. They said... Mm. This rain event that they have, they expected to have that every 30 years. They've had that three times in the last five. Mm. So they're getting more of these rain events. Mm. But they've got these pumping stations around inside the levee bank. So if you get too much rain and too much water that gathers inside the levee bank, they have these pumping stations that are activated to turn it to, to pump the water from inside right. to outside. Yep. And I thought it would have been automated. We're in Japan after all. Yep. But they said what they do is they send out a message to the farmers and one of the farmers will go down and manually start these pumping stations because <laughs> it's in their best interest. Yeah, so again, right. they're looking after But again, each other. I'm just trying to see how this would go in Australia. Mm. Uh, Terry, mate, look, I know it's uh, two o'clock in the morning, but we've got to get that pump on. I know it's at the bottom of your paddock. Can you go and turn it on for me? Pretty sure I know what Terry's reaction is going to be here in Australia. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> wow. So I think... They learned a bit on that. We had a thing at the end of it called an opinion exchange. So mm. It was really a chance for us to put forward some of the things that we saw and noticed and how that might help them and some of the things from their perspective yeah. with us. Yeah. And, and we certainly talked about things like compliance. How can we get our residents to be more compliant in that rubbish mm. stream and mm. those rubbish streams? What else can we do around those? And, and certainly from our perspective, we were impressed with some of the infrastructure. The mm. roads are in pretty good condition. What do they do with their roads? But yeah. I think it came down to what was underneath their roads. It's a mm. very much a, a volcanic area. So that volcanic volcanic under the volcanic ash or volcanic ground underneath the roads seeming more stable than some of the, mm. the soil that we've got so we probably can't replicate that but mm. it's all about the exchange of ideas mm. it's all about making sure we help them and they help us yeah, what can we yeah. do and i have no doubt at all that there'll be some exchanges going on from kahuku town residents and some of the residents that were on that particular delegation. I also so probably think here too that um, listening to you, probably how they go about their problem-solving processes. You know, I reckon that would be interesting. Listening to what you're saying, you know, how they're solving their problems and the way that they're going about that, that, that whole process of this is how we're going to solve this problem, the communicating that step-by-step type ideas, that's, that's invaluable, those sort of things. Well, I think to a large extent the Japanese have this culture of your greater purpose, mm. what what should you be doing in life, what is your contribution to society, how can you help your fellow man, and mm. it very much is about looking after your fellow man, and obviously they're very gracious, they're very accommodating, mm. it's all about making sure you're being looked after, everything's okay for you rather mm. than yourself, so it's a very unselfish approach, mm. I don't know how you replicate that, but they, they learn that, I mean everywhere's so clean, people mm. don't drop rubbish, but they learn that from when they're born, yeah. at home they learn to keep things clean. Kids clean schools. It's a regular thing where they're just mopping the floors well, and like doing that. things. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but everywhere, even the recycling centres, even the yeah. waste disposal centres we went to, they were very clean. I'm looking around, yeah. and and one of our delegation made mention to the mayor to say the 
the centre where all the rubbish is taken, mm. it looked clean enough inside you could eat your dinner off the floor. Wow. It, it was a rubbish dump, basically. I yeah. mean, it was, a, it was a very fancy rubbish dump, but yeah. rubbish dump, and it looked that clean. So how do you change that culture? How do you get people to, to change? That's a, mm. a generational thing. I don't mm. know we can do that easily. Mm. But, yeah, I think there's lots of learnings there, and I think it's just yeah. good to have that international exchange. Absolutely. Well done. Well, mate, it's been a big one today uh, in welcoming back here from Japan and uh, thank you for going through uh, your trip there with us. Of course, it's that time where it's the Limerick of the Week. So, I've got a bit of a feeling that your Limerick of the Week this week may have something to do with Japan. Am I right in saying that? No, it was, for me, the highlight. And, and yes. sure, I've given you 20 minutes there, but I could talk for 20 hours about oh, understand what we saw and so. the things that we, we did there. So, I did do the Limerick this week on Japan, so I'll give that to you now. Now back from the land of the rising sun, the hearts of the delegates had all been won. For in every Japanese face, we found a warm embrace, and our journey was second to none. (laughs) Well done, well done. Well, folks, that wraps up again for another Straight from the Mayor's Mouth. Until next week, everyone, take care. Straight from the Mayor's Mouth with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council.